just looked at the schedule. We we rewritten our talk about four times um, to make sure we got it in in 40 minutes. We have an hour and a half. We're not going to expand it and bore you with that. But I think since we have so much time, let's as we go along. If anybody has any questions, um, you know, we'll, we'll be glad to discuss. And maybe then we'll have some time for discussion because we're not here as um, you know, marriage counselors or marriage professionals or anything of that sort. We're here um, because God rescued us from uh, the hell that we had placed each other in. And, um, and, and that's our testimony, is that we do have a God that rescues, you know, came on the rescue mission that Kurt was talking about. Um, we, and I don't, do you remember why we gave the talk at Mockingbird last year? Why or? Or how it came about? No, I don't, I think David asked us to speak and we decided to do, uh, share on our marriage. We had done that at church and um, it was just testimony summer. They didn't have any Sunday school teachers so everybody had to get up and either tell about their personal walk with Christ and we chose to get up together and talk about how he had worked in our marriage and um, it proved very entertaining. But it was also enlightening that God was so in the details and in our unbelief and as we prepared for that, I got a lot out of it too, to look back. Sometimes we're so forward focused. He tells us to find standing stones and to look back and to remember. And it, I would advise anybody to do that. It was really enriching. Yeah. So every time we give a testimony, um, you know, we look back and remember stuff and we remember the bad stuff that we've kind of forgotten. And that makes us more aware of the grace that, you know, was extended to us. And, and, and every time we do it, you know, if we're going to speak to a group, it's always for us first, right? Because if it's not for us first, if we don't get something, some psychological charge out of it or some, you know, new revelation, then we don't really have anything to pass on. And so, uh, so anyway, um, I guess we'll get started. And again, if y'all have any questions or you want to weigh in on something, start. So... Um, it's had all different kinds of titles, our talk. <laughs> Finally, Carol said we have to have a title today, so we sent her a title, called, and the title is Salvation Events. So um, I was listening to a podcast by Scott Jones, who used to do the Mockingcast, Mockingbird, and, and he's friends with a bunch of the Mockingbird people, and he had a guy named Peter Enns, and Peter Enns was... Uh, uh, professor at a PCA seminary. He wrote a book. The people at the seminary didn't like his book, so they kicked him out. <clears throat> so Peter Enns came to the end of himself um, and found God. And that's his testimony. And when he was given this talk, he said, grace grows best in winter. And that is a quote from Samuel Rutherford, who was a Presbyterian Scottish theologian. Grace grows best in winter, and that's our testimony. You know, our testimony is that whether it's a big winter, like you know, losing a job, uh, divorce, um, losing a child, or or it's a small winter, you know, like you know, some setback. Uh, I'm a lawyer, like I lose a case at work or something. That that 
is where we actually realize that we need a rescuing God. We don't need a rescuing God when everything's rocking along fine and dandy. We need a rescuing God when we run into the difficulties of life, the winters of life. And in the, in the prior talk that we gave, um, we talked about how we've been through three different stages of marriage. And the transitioning moment from each of those stages to the next, I would say was a winter. We're now today gonna to talk about our fourth stage of marriage and what that's done for us. Um, but just to kind of give you a flavor of where we're coming from, I'll go back 20 years to 1997. And so we've been married for about 10 years. And, you know, um, Dr. Paulson this morning was talking about the path drawn. Well, my path was to be the best dadgum lawyer I could be, to have all these, you know, junior partners and associates working for me and to have the corner office. And by gosh, that was my path. You know, Debbie, on the other hand, wanted to be the best mother she could be. And that was her path. And you weren't gonna knock her off her path. And you weren't gonna knock me off my path. And like he was pointing out this morning, you know, she, we were, in some ways trying to knock each other off the path. She thought I should be you know, more um, interactive with the children, that I should support her more. I was horrible for those first 10 years at supporting her as being a mother because I thought everything was the job, you know. And then the children come along and you know, I felt like she was so focused on the children that you know, I fell by the wayside. I mean, these are not uncommon stories. Uh, it's just that, you know, God had a different answer for us. I mean, he rescued us from it. Um, so in 1997, we got to where I would work, and Debbie would take care of the kids, and um, I was horribly depressed. I mean, depressed to the point, you know, the burdens that he was talking about, the burdens that we care that lead to the anxiety, um, I was horribly depressed because Debbie wouldn't do what I wanted her to. <laughs> my client, I had to meet with the FBI about one of my clients that I had fired, and you realize all of a sudden I think I'm this ethical guy, and I didn't figure out that my client was was a crook, you know. So everything just kind of came crashing down on me. And Debbie, why don't you just tell them briefly what kind of brought you to the end of yourself about that time? For me, God was kind of merciful. He blessed me with a third child, which is a good thing. I had a toddler, though, at home, a six-month-old baby, actually, when I found out I was pregnant with my third child. And I was doing really well, part-time work, taking care of the kids pretty much on my own. We kind of slipped into a marriage my parents had when my dad provided and my mom took care of us. And I knew, you know, I only had two hands. Now I'm going to get three kids. What, what's going to happen here? It was a little scary for me. and. Um, all through my pregnancy, I would go to the doctor and say, I can't believe I'm having a baby. And he pulled me aside, I guess, at six months and said, you know, I know someone that gave their baby up. And I thought, I was horrified. I thought, he thinks I don't want this child when really I was in denial with how I'd cope with this. How could I be the best mom possible now that I've got three coming? And it just kind of woke me up to, yes, you are going to have a baby <laughs> in several more months and um, things are never gonna be the same as they were. And, and I wanted him and I was excited, but I was so aware that I was not gonna be in control at the level 
that I had been before. That was my wake up. Yeah. And I think, you know, we both allowed, I allowed work to distract me from God and my wife and my kids. And I think Debbie would say that she, you know, the children's children in some way, a good thing, right? Distracted her from, from God. And, um, so we were both, I mean, you can tell if, if the obstetrician is saying, well, you can give your baby up for adoption. I mean, she was in, you know, depressed. I mean, she was in a world of hurt. And I was, you know, as I said, suicidal. Well, a friend invited me to Paul Zoll's Bible study. And um, he started talking about things I'd never heard of before, like you have no free will. You have these libidinal urges that control everything you do, you know. Um, grace is the only hope you have. You don't have any good works that you can bring to God. You know, uh, to the extent you think you have any good works, you know, that's like, uh, what did Paul say? The dirty rags. Um, and, and, you know, 20 years later, I haven't thought of suicide in 20 years. thought about it every day for a year <laughs> with the burdens that Dr. Paulson was talking about. Um, and so I found a God that said, you know what, Ellis, you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to achieve power or money or success or whatever. Um, and it, it just, it, it, I became um, more lovable, thankfully. <laughs> because about the same time, and this was, I, I mean, I always wanted a family. I mean, not maybe just because that's what you do in the South. But about the same time, Debbie said, so if it weren't for the kids, I would leave you. Um, and I'm plotting, she denies saying this, but it's clear as a bell, right? Those things he says he hears. Yeah. Uh, it, it, uh, I'm plotting my escape for when the kids graduate high school. Plotting her escape. Uh, so anyway, that was, that, all of that brought me to the end of myself. And fortunately, I found a God that met me there. And why don't you tell them about um, the Bible study you started going to? Well, after I had James, um, I needed child care, and so I moved my kids to Covenant Press. It was just kind of like a divine situation. I decided to get baptized with my daughter. We were attending a Baptist church, and I had grown up Methodist, and I didn't even know they had this thing of about baptizing you, and so you'd be a member. And it was really ironic because I decided that my I had grown in my dependence on Christ and Ellis even encouraged me to get baptized and I'll never forget I got baptized with my daughter who was in first grade it was beautiful and people came up and started welcoming me to the church now I've been teaching Sunday school been there for four years but I didn't even realize that because I had grown up Methodist but I ended up walking in cold to a Bible study that was titled uh, how to have an unmediated relationship with God and I thought man I'd like one of those I'd just like for you to tell me what to do I'd like to know a God that could communicate with me and um, it was anything but that it was about um, our self-reliance and about probably no I really don't want a relationship with God all the time I want to run things my own way and I want him to get on board with that so I joined this study and the thing that was so amazing about it is we got together and sang praise music and I started learning about worshiping through praise music and surrendering 
and then she would teach, and then we'd break out into small groups, and we'd share our prayer request and journey with each other and pray with one another. And it was really interesting because uh, Kathy said, "Now I don't want to hear about what your husband's doing wrong, and I don't want to hear about what your kids are thankfully, doing wrong." Thankfully, yeah, right, but it, you know, at that time, I thought if he would straighten up, I really wouldn't have any problems. So taking him out of the picture made me look at how I perceived the things he did, how how I how I perceived my life and why it was so challenging. And I began to find unconditional acceptance where people weren't judging me and they were praying for me. And I think um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this book, Life Together. And I'll never forget reading that. Um, he believes God gives each one of us a measure of faith for our companion. And that kind of took me off the hook and let me know, God, these people do have a measure of faith for me that they want to give me, pray for me, and I for them that we need community. And I grabbed hold of that and I've been there 20 years now and I'm a group facilitator and I have my own small group that we support one another and pray with each other. And I just began for the first time in my life really being discipled yeah. in a meaningful way. Well, it's interesting, so I tell everybody, I mean, she's been in the same Bible study for 20 years, right? Well, it, it just dawned on me, you know, I mean, to a lot of different churches, but in a way, you know, I've never left Paul's Zoll's Bible study because I heard him for six years and then David started Mockingbird and I've been able to follow that and you know once you get a real sense of who God is once you find somebody who uh, at least my as I understand God now um, we're not sinners in the hands of an angry God we're sinners in the hands of a merciful God so we, we both latched onto a God and, and to people who get that and proclaim that and encourage us and help us walk through life. So um, so I like getting up in front of people. It's really funny, not funny, because it deals with my mother's passing, but um, at her funeral about two or three weeks ago, um, my sister and I spoke, and Debbie spoke. <laughs> and somebody came up and said, you know, I don't think we've ever heard a daughter-in-law speak at their mother-in-law speak, which was really sweet. Well, the, the funny thing about it is Debbie, who does not like public speaking, is actually a more, I, she's really engaging, and, and I, I, anyway, she does a great job, so I'm so thankful she was coming to do this. Um, but um, I guess where I was headed with that, and you know, the question is, well, so how did we wind up speaking at this one? I told Debbie... I'd really like to speak in Mockingbird again, you know, where this is fun for me, you know, and she's like, no, you know. <laughs> well, he was going to ask, and I yeah. said, you don't ask people to speak at their functions. You wait until they ask you. That was so I mean, I embarrassing do. to me, and I didn't want to do it, so I said, do you know what that cost me last time, getting so scared, getting up in front of me, in New York City, you know, oh, my goodness, and then I really was convicted after I said that because... I got a lot out of speaking, out of going back and getting up and writing all that down and looking back. And and he used to have a terrible temper. And I hate being around angry people. I mean, I have a zero tolerance for it in myself, unfortunately, and others. And I have forgotten that. How you could forget something that was so painful. But we had moved so far beyond that. So fast forward, he respected me and he didn't contact David 
and I said, you know, if God wants us to speak at this, he'll let us know. We'll ask us. Well, Carol emailed me within two weeks and asked oh if we gosh. would speak at this. So it was kind of the humor of God, you know. You're like, or he loves Ellis yeah. more than me. I don't know which, but... Um, so, so then, well, so then Debbie said, "So what are we going to talk about? You know, we, we're not going to do what we did last time, obviously. Um, and what <clears throat> what thing new do we have to talk about? Because our life has gotten a lot better, our marriage has gotten a lot better, and um, and then my mother had this really serious downturn. Well, she she well, she just passed away three weeks ago, on the seventeenth of September. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so she was ninety four. Um, she'd been living one block behind us for 18 years and um, she wanted to live in her house until she died right and so we had told her we're gonna do that if we can right so May 24th I think yeah Debbie has all these dates down <laughs> May 24th she just had a cancer removed from her leg a very simple procedure and for some reason that just put her into a tailspin physically somehow maybe psychologically and therefore physically and and she needed 24 7 care in fact she was so weak you know we thought she's probably got a week left you know she thought she's probably got a week left and so 24 7 well, we'll do that for a week you know um, well she rebounded some and anyway she lived for another four months or so um, but it was you know what we thought was going to be a winter for my mother and a winter for us um, spending this much time with her really turned out to be something completely different um, and, and so my mother was she literally thought I was going to be president like of the U.S., like it, you know, it surprised her. I think that I'm not, you know, haven't been yet anyway. So she, uh, and she voted on me, and, but we were never, we were kind of emotionally distant. I think for her generation, you didn't really challenge men; you kind of let them do what they wanted to do or whatever, which wasn't good for me. But anyway. Um, and she had a different relationship with my sister. Were you? That's right. She had a, a great relationship with my sister. But I thought, well, this is going to be pretty hard because we don't have the, the 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 emotional connection. And so we thought this was going to be a winner, but I'll be it, but a short one, maybe. And Debbie, I don't know. Tell you can talk about your yeah, relationship. My I have been taking care of her off and on for 18 years. She's the most appreciative person. And I loved her, but I didn't feel like there was a lot of connection there. And I always felt internally a little bit guilty about that. I just really struggled with it. I took her to the doctor's appointments and did all those things, and we enjoyed what we could. And then looking back on it, we just had really different temperaments. And I'm, if anybody's ever done the Enneagram, I'm a number nine, which is the non-confrontational one. So if I get around a strong personality, I just kind of shrink back. And Miss Virginia had a strong personality. And she didn't mind telling people when she thought they did something wrong. She didn't mind getting angry. I think that's probably where he inherited it. So that kind of impacted our relationship and then here I am stepping forward and managing her care for her and uh, we found out you know 
that we needed to stay over there all the time. And I was so upset. And one place I've gotten to with Christ finally is it's okay to be mad or angry in front of him and go to him like he is a person. Um, I was so disappointed and, and it was so childish. I was like, I cannot believe you take away my freedom. You know, I can't believe you would do this to me in this season of my life. My boys are about to come home from college. That is so important to me. Um, I assumed Ellis and I would take turns staying over there so that meant I wouldn't see him as much. And I felt such conviction to look at what was the hardest part because I felt like the Lord was just saying, you, you can do this. You, can, you and Ellis can both go over there and stay. You can go over there and open the blinds and clean it up and change the darkness that you perceived was there. I felt like there was a lot of spiritual warfare going on, just going over and moving into this home. And um, I was getting pulled off my track big time. I was at an age where I was an empty nester in control of whoever I wanted to minister to, basically, and who I didn't. Uh, what rewarded me seemed like there was joy in it, and I think that's so true. God does bring us joy, but I also think He calls us to things that are really, really difficult and hard. And at that time, I was just, I was really struggling. And so, um, as we would head over there sometimes in the evening, I told Ellis I started having these anxiety experiences that I hadn't had since I was a child. I'd get butterflies in my stomach, my heart rate would start beating fast as I knew it was time to go over there and the sitter was leaving and I thought, what is wrong with me? I'm just going crazy. I didn't have a particular thought on my mind. I'd learned in Bible study, take your thoughts captive. I thought, no, I'm just having all these feelings. How do I take all these feelings captive? And I started putting on the armor as I went over there, and that has never been so meaningful to me. I had about enough time to go a half a block and pray that on and just, and I think what was happening is I felt so incredibly vulnerable at this season, and that made me feel like I was surrendering to God, and I kept trying to do that, but I will tell you, emotionally, my emotions hadn't caught up yet, and I was finding myself a little bit frustrated and angry and just overwhelmed. So, the first 10 years of our marriage, I felt like Debbie never would disclose her feelings to me. And so when she actually said, you know, she said she told me, you know, if it weren't for the kids, I'd be gone. You know, I'm plotting my escape. It was horrible to hear in one sense, but it was also great to hear in another. Um, and, you know, I, I enjoyed it when she got mad this summer. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Because it's kind of like she's really coming out and being, there's this picture of her when she was four and she has this tomboy smirk on her face. Mm -hmm. And you know that whatever she's about to do is not exactly right. <laughs> she's about to get into some kind of trouble. She was just mischievous. And so I feel like the first 10 years of our marriage, because I did have a volatile temper, you know, once a month I would just go off, you know, and that it really, caused her to hide who she really was and so I have loved the fact that now she is who I think God made her to be and it's really it, it, you know it's a blessing to me um, well I was just going to share how in this season God knew we needed help and we started he started building a community around us as I was going over there um, 
we got hospice involved, which was such a positive. Um, slowly, I hired sitters. I should have done that quicker, but we got some wonderful Christian, I would call them missionaries. I mean, they are amazing. And um, our neighbors, my children, just so many people rallied around us. And I will say, it's, it was embarrassing to me because I'm a nurse. I know how to take care of people physically when they're sick, but I'm a pediatric nurse, and I was so bummed out that I was taking care of somebody on hospice. I want to go get you well, you know, and, and get things thriving, and God showed me so much in that, that there is thriving until your last day. There's a possibility of flourishing, but I wouldn't even entertain that thought at first, and um my mother had cared for my dad's father in the home. You know, I had a lot of practical experience to do in this, and I was just so flustered by how difficult it was. But I think, again, it was me being pulled off track, as he was speaking about today, where I had certain goals in my life. I had to clear my slate. I didn't do some of the ministries I had been doing. I didn't contact some of the friends I've been contacting. We didn't go on any vacations. We really kind of narrowed down. But I found just some new freedom as I complained to him that I was losing the gift of my own time and freedom. He, he really showed us some beautiful things this summer that I'd like to point out as I kind of show where I was and the safety net I had to unravel some. I think we've all heard of the word caregiver's burnout, but it wasn't ringing true to me as I would unravel a little. Ellis asked me to go ahead and hire sitters all through the day since we were there at night. And that was really hard for me to do, to trust people. And I had hired one sitter that was great, but she only stayed four hours a day. Well, when I used to work as a nurse, I didn't work triples. You know, it was kind of like I was over there all the time. And the boys had gotten home, and this is kind of embarrassing to share, but it's where I was. I came walking in my house one morning at 9 a.m., and my son was sitting at the table, my older son, and the younger one was walking down the stairs. And I was trying to think of something to do with them in four hours. For just four hours. Just yeah. four hours yeah. was my only break. And I started crying. I said, you know, all I can think of doing is getting drunk. And I don't drink. <laughs> I told my children that. That's awful. And my older son doesn't even drink. The younger one would love to. He's not legal yet. And he came down and sat down in my lap. I think that stops him. Yeah, put his it. arms around me and said, Mom, I'll go get drunk with you. And <laughs> Ella said, I think he meant that. But you know, they got to see their mom, who was probably always in control, doing something that was really over yeah. my head. And we all thought it would be over in two or three weeks, and it wasn't. And so as I left them at home, I even texted my daughter later, who's 25, I said, I think um, I'm losing it. I just asked your brothers if they wanted to go get drunk. And she, I said, I don't know what's wrong with me. And she said, Mom, I think you're just regressing. And I thought, that is what I'm doing. I'm acting like a teenager here. But it brought up some, yeah. some discussion between us because we both would get to the end of our rope at different times, I would have been furious if Ellis if you'd said that to our sons. I would have probably suggested we go to counseling. She would have. But he was so supportive of me. He didn't pick a fight. And, and over a lot of things, I told him, I said, used to, I don't know, like when you have small children and you're tired or worn out, they can be at their worst. I always felt like Ellis was too. And when I needed him the most years ago, 
he would pick a fight with me, or rather than say, hey, you're kind of off kilter here, is everything okay? It'd be, what is wrong with you? And I didn't notice that this time, and I felt like yeah. I was acting a little bit psychotic, and he still was so supportive. He worked at uh, my mother-in-law's home in the mornings as much as he could to support me, and I did start hiring more people, and they ministered to my mother-in-law in such a beautiful place we couldn't. Well, so, and just before you get into that, um, so my mother, the first, was it with the first week maybe she woke up and she said, you know, I prayed that I wouldn't wake up this morning. I prayed that Jesus would take me during the night. You know, and she said that two or three mornings in a row. And we kept trying to tell her, well, you know, that means he's not finished with you yet. Does anyone really believe that? I mean, to me, that's the Christian platitude that you say to somebody. She's 94. She would leave the house to do one of two things. Go to the doctor uh, or maybe go to get her hair done because she'd had fallen a number of times, she had panic attacks, and, and she knew that if she fell again, right, then it, that could be the end. So, so anyway, so she, so I'm, I'm thinking this is going to be miserable for the next however long. She's going to be miserable, will be miserable, but I gave her this Christian platitude. Well, it surprised me, it surprised her, it surprised my wife, it surprised my kids. <laughs> That was actually true. <laughs> it really worked out. That God wasn't done with in, with with her uh, for sure because of the way she flourished over those last four months, and then the way it impacted all of us. So um, I don't know. You talk about my mother, then I'll talk about the kids. I guess. Well, she had a lot of firsts with the end of her life stage, which was just beautiful to see. I had read this Richard Rohr email that was talking about. A scarcity versus abundance and that the world's economy is there's never enough you know we have to fight to get enough love resources whatever but that's not God's economy and I don't believe, I know that's not God's economy and I thought wait a minute even if she's on hospice and terminal we can start praying for abundance and flourishing in this situation and we started seeing that happen and it was so exciting first she was in her bedroom and we Come had great colleagues 102, had a hard time getting her out of her room, and then she had some guests and had to get up in a wheelchair and get out, and then we ended up, she started eating two meals instead of one a day, and we were um, working on uh, our house, so we had the construction guy go over and build a wheelchair ramp. Well, suddenly she's getting outside. This person that kept thinking any day God was going to take her. And she, I put up a hummingbird feeder. Ella said she loved flowers. We're all going out there and sitting with her. And it, our time there is not so heavy. The level of burnout watching someone uh, not motivated to do anything for themselves first and getting up. And the sitters loving her so richly and connecting started changing and giving us memories with her we never had. Ellis took her for a walk out front one day and what did the guy say? Somebody stopped and rolled down the window and said, is that your mom? And he said, yeah. Well, I was rolling her through the neighborhood in a wheelchair, you know, and she loved flowers, but she was scared to get outside. So finally, you know, she was, because we put her in the wheelchair, she was willing to get outside. And she didn't understand for years she didn't want a wheelchair. I mean, she had her walker. Um, so anyway, so that was really nice. I mean, she got to do that. T 
tell them about James and uh, so one of the things that was really hard was you know me not being able to cook for the boys or spend time with them much well they started wandering over for food I should have known they would <laughs> they came every morning when they got up for breakfast and we'd have her outside in the wheelchair and here's another first time they're having <coughs> breakfast with their grandmother I mean she never came to our house for holidays for fear she'd fall we don't even yeah. have the memories with her living close by you know coming over or doing things with us and I'll never forget James saying one time he and the boys started checking on her my daughter and asking while they would come and go they had summer school and he said I feel like I have a grandmother for the first time and I thought who would have expected that to come out of this hard situation of taking care of her till her last days and um, I just treasured that in my heart that they're gonna have memories with her and we are too we to see God take her places she was fearful and give her new freedom so it was yeah really good. and and food that she would never eat she was a nutritionist um, she taught at Alabama for about 10 years before she had kids so she was big on nutrition, so like we could never eat KFC growing up, you know. <laughs> so she was eating Doritos, you know, loving the Doritos. I mean, it was just like, it was, there were so many firsts. It was, really, it was, I mean, it was beautiful. Our, our other son, so we're worried about, we're not going to get the time with our sons this summer. Are they going to feel neglected or whatever, right? Well, so you heard what James said. Well, Mathis, um, he, he's, uh, well, he took the Myers-Briggs this summer. Um, some, someone recommended that he take the Myers-Briggs so he'd know himself better because he's got a high level of anxiety. Well, it turns out <clears throat> on the Myers-Briggs, I can't remember the alphabet letters, but his is 1 in 70. So 1 in 70 men have his personality. I'm 1 in 6, like I'm every guy around. You know, I want to watch football. I don't want to kill the quarterback on the other team. Maybe not kill, but for that game, you know. And that's not Mathis at all. He's the most sensitive, loving. He's like my wife. <laughs> he's always sensitive to other people's needs. He walks into a room, and it's like if he finds out people's needs, that's what he cares about. I'm trying to accomplish something usually. But anyway, so he took the Myers-Briggs. And, you know, I think he'd struggled with, and he'd known that he was a lot more like his mother than me. And, and he'd really struggled with that. And he really, before this summer, had not really allowed us to comfort him in his anxiety. You know, he was just going to forge ahead and do it like a guy, you know. And I think the Myers-Briggs allowed him to see who he was. And you see strengths and weaknesses for each personality type. Um, so then we all took it. Right. And, and as you would expect, I mean, Debbie and I were literally exactly opposite on the Myers-Briggs. So taking the Myers-Briggs and being able to see that we're all complex people, we all have certain strengths and weaknesses, allowed us to stop judging the other person and, and ourselves, right? I judge myself for my, I prayed for years that God would take away my anger lust and um, cursing for years the only thing that ever took away I still curse a fair amount maybe not as much as I used to um, but my anger and lust you know prayer didn't do it but when I found this different God in the late 90s early 2000s it, it just it, it those things fell away in large part I mean you know Luther says we're going to struggle with whoever we are till we die 
he's right about that, but you can have victories, you can have deliverance. Um, so anyway, it was... Um, well, tell them the irony too. My son, Mathis, who took oh, the right. Myers-Briggs, is in love with a girl that lives in another country, and we, we met her and love her, but we don't know her all that well. Her Myers-Briggs was the same as Elvis's. I thought, how do you do this? How do you meet somebody from another country? And sparks flew, and you know. So we had a lot of fun just communicating. Yeah. It gave us a pathway and to connect with our ch other children and family. And, and so Yeah, was, well, and James and his girlfriend took it. And I, and I think, so just from a marital standpoint or from any sort of relationship standpoint, you know, for years I would want Debbie to fix her weaknesses, you know, and I would apply the law. I would say, well, pick up the house. Pick up the damn house the next night and then pick up the GD house the next night. Yeah, that doesn't work, right? And so I learned from Paul Zoll that that's the law. I mean, I never realized that. I thought, well, you just tell people to do what you want them to do and they'll do it, you know? Or yourself, you can't even tell yourself what to do, right? What does St. Paul say? I don't do the things I want to do, and I do do the things I don't want to do. I mean, it's crazy. You cannot tell somebody what to do. So after hearing Paul's all, I finally just started picking up the house. And, and there she felt she had some help, right? I was finally a helpmate. So the point in all that is to say that you, we have these strengths and weaknesses. And what we found was her strengths compensate for my weaknesses and my strengths compensate for her weaknesses. And if, and if you can realize that and see the other person as a whole person and not try to change them and understand too, and this is what the Myers-Briggs showed, with these strengths, you get these weaknesses. I don't get to say, okay, I get Debbie with just her strengths or she gets Ellis with just his strengths. The weaknesses come along. And when you take in the entire person, I mean, that's when change can really happen. Um, Ethan Richardson, I don't know if y'all heard his talk. He did this wonderful talk at Mockingbird last, this spring, 2018. So if you want to go back and pull it up, it's on video. So Ethan was talking about, I guess, just relationships in general. And forgiveness, I think. Is in and forgiveness, yes. Yeah. So what he said was, it's not your spouse that's the problem. Right, if, you're, if you're having marital problems. It's not your sibling that's the problem if you're having sibling rivalry. He said it's the fundamental nature of relationships. It's the marriage. <laughs> the marriage is hard, no matter who you're married to. Being a brother and a sister, my, we were estranged for a lot of years. I mean, we were superficially fine, but emotionally estranged. Um, it's... it's um, I had it with that. Well, just that that we need to expect to be challenged. Yes. We need to expect there, this to not be easy, and we're going to yeah. usually be attracted to our opposite when we get married. Not yeah. our, you know. I yeah. was looking for my soulmate, and got really disappointed right yeah. away that he couldn't read my mind, and I did. I messed up finding the perfect yeah. Southern guy that could somehow read my mind. Well, you put me back on track. Thank you. So then, Ethan said. <laughs> So it's the relationship itself that's the problem, trying to relate to another person because we're all sinners. And he said what kills relationships most is expectations. So I wasn't her soulmate. So she's like, wrong person, you know. Uh, Debbie wouldn't do what I wanted her to do. I wanted to have a Southern Baptist Stepford family where she got the kids dressed, she dressed them all alike, and they showed up that time on, you know, with smiling faces. 
like, well, I went and prayed you with see, the I old went people. See, I grew up you know, Methodist. He was already was, messed up. You know, yeah, I didn't was. know the, <laughs> the expectation there. So. so anyway, so expectations can be a relationship killer. But anyway, the beauty of this summer was that in this place that looked like it was going to be a winter, and in a place where our, um, you know, child child nature came out, wounds from childhood, people say it, that, you know, we all have wounds that manifest themselves in times of extremist stress or whatever. Um, and, 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 you know, we saw that this summer, but we both looked beyond it for each other. Um, 20 years ago, that would not have happened. So we're very thankful for that. And maybe the thing we want to end with, so Paul Zoll <coughs> always says that um, if you've lost your way in something, or maybe this is what Kathy, no, what Kathy and Paul kind of say the same thing. So Paul's all my spiritual mentor, I guess, would always say, in a marriage, if you lost your way, go back to what brought you together. You know, go back to the spark. Go back to what attracted you to the other person. And just remember that. And that can be some light in the darkness of wherever you find yourselves. Debbie's mentor, Kathy, said pretty much the same thing. She said, if, you, if you've lost love for someone, whether it's God or another person, you know, go back to where you lost it. You want to say anything about that? Well, she just said back up relationally where love can flow. Yeah. And I think, I think it was so neat in hindsight that I had learned to ask God who he wanted to be for me in a season. And he wanted to be my keeper. And as it unraveled, and I feel like I wasn't keeping myself very well together, I trusted and kept leaning into that, that he wanted to keep me and show me things. And my anger, even though it upset me, and it came out as humor and sarcasm, it was nothing more than that. But I didn't like being in situations that took me to the end of myself, and that's exactly where I needed to be so I could take in a trust in a new experience and I did want to speak a little bit about her last days oh, we yeah, have time yeah. you know part of this um, pediatric nurse mentality and not wanting to take care of people in their last days is I just saw that there could be no beauty in that was my understanding or belief system and I'd moved over and cleaned up that house and it was looking more attractive the birds and the flowers we're beginning to see some beauty on the horizon. The pesticide guy comes in the house, and what did he say? He hadn't been there in two months, and my mother-in-law was sitting at the table. Her table used to have so many research clippings and papers, and he just said, oh, my gosh, you've cleaned all this off. It looks so good. Well, she had allowed us to do that. She didn't really want to. And But that was me. I think God was saying, people are noticing the house is decluttered. It's better. It's more beautiful. Well, she even was able to walk on her walk or some to have breakfast in the um, kitchen. And she, um, one Saturday though, I think she had a stroke. She had a downturn and couldn't talk anymore and couldn't move her right, or right arm and right leg. And it was um, really, really hard, but really, really good. Um, I think that's when my heart kind of gave in to saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. It was like a one-sided conversation that got to happen. And um, just forgiveness for her not being who I wanted her to be. And, you know, I was telling the girls last night, 
or someone that, you know, I am not organized. I shoot from the hip. This woman was a college professor. She read everything. She made a list. She never did anything without reading the manual. I never read the manual. And suddenly, that's who's taking care of her. Bless her heart, you know. That's what she had to deal with. And so we both were in a, a disjointing, kind of challenging situation. And my sister-in-law came home from California, and she got to step in and do some of her mom's care those last days. We started having hospice come daily, and the sitter said, well, now we're actually able to care for your mom, because even at that point, she was very independent, and it's our turn to care for her and love her. So lots of visions of life there. Well, we had been told not to expect her to live through Friday, much less Saturday, uh, by hospice and the sitters who had experience and I didn't. And she'd gotten to a place where she was kind of semi-conscious. It wasn't a very beautiful setting. She had her mouth open and she was breathing real irregularly. And, and uh, we were doing all we could to make her comfortable. Like four times a minute. Like all I could think was, this is like a death rattle. Because her mouth was open, but it was just gasping, you know, to stay alive. And the kids kind of stuck through it with yeah. us. They were a part of that. Well, then on Monday, her respiratory rate was back up to 27. She was peaceful. Her color looked good. She wasn't. Her mouth had closed. She was. <clears throat> and I thought, ahead. well, here we go. Another week or two. I don't know. <laughs> God's in this. We're letting it go. But um, I had to meet the chaplain over at her house while my sister-in-law was there. And Joe um, came every month, and he'd been he'd been there two weeks ago, so I know he came earlier because she was not doing well. And um, he was remarkable to me because he was a Jewish Christian, and he loved what he did. He loved being a part of hospice, and he came in with all this energy, and he goes, I'm here to see your mother-in-law, and I want to pray the 23rd Psalms over her, and I want to anoint her with oil, and I want y'all to do that behind me, trace your fingers and pray after I anoint her with oil. And it was just and uh, my sister-in-law and I just locked eyes because my mother-in-law's favorite Bible passage was the 23rd Psalms. And I, granted, you may pray that over a lot of people as they're exiting, but I was so encouraged. And Deborah had, uh, he said several things that really uh, blessed her. So it was a real positive, so joyous Debbie moment. Debbie and Deborah, Deborah's my sister. Just and so we could, headed yeah. back to Virginia's room, and in that little bit of time, she had already passed. And um, she looked so peaceful. And then Joe just got right down to business doing exactly what he was going to do if she'd been alive. He had a prayer shawl. He put that over her. He prayed the 23rd Psalms. And then he anointed her head with oil and prayed over her. And then all of a sudden, it was my turn to pray for her. And I thought, okay, God, what, what do I say at this last moment? What am I, you know, how do I love her? And it just came to me how intertwined our legacies were. I got my kids because of her. I got him, warts and all, but <laughs> because of her. And um, I just, I traced the oil and just gave thanks for the legacy she passed on to me. And um, it was just so freeing. I felt like I loved her at a level I'd always wanted to. And then there was just still more beauty. Um, her face was so pretty. She looked like a little girl, and I didn't say it out loud, and then my sister-in-law did. She goes, my gosh, mom looks like a little girl now. 
and um, she was sitting up in bed and the light was shining on her. I felt like the Lord was like, I have the last word here, Debbie. Dad, where is it sting? She's beautiful. She's mine. I felt like he came and got her, and that's why she looked the way she did. And then we... Um, we tried to let Joe off the hook and tell him he didn't have to sit there all afternoon. He goes, no, I'm supposed to be here. And every time, every few minutes, he would pray with us. But y'all, it was such a beautiful thing. He was so sensitive to everything. And um, the, the man that came to escort her, take her body to the funeral home, pulls up and there's a back door to get in. And so we're trying to move her bed over so they can get the stretcher. And he goes, no, 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 I'm going to carry and so they wrapped her in this yellow sheet, and she looked so pretty. And then he picked her up and walked her out to the stretcher, and I just thought, I wouldn't have missed that for anything. Life-changing for me to see what God can do with death. And I know it's not always like that. I, I don't know, but I felt like he met me where I was and showed me a different ending to something that was just priceless. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> I was talking about Paul's Hall, and now he says, go back to what brought you together. You know, so sort of the beginning of your relationship with the spouse or whoever, right? And then Debbie started talking about legacy. And so, when I first started writing this talk, I was going to do um, beginning, of beginning of relationship, end of relationship, and it was going to be legacy and then we wrote it two or three times and that went away the whole thing it just changed well it came back to legacy and it came back to legacy in two ways one is the experience that Debbie had that last morning with my mother but the other was I was sitting in church and there's a married couple that we've been trying to run along beside um, trying to point to the God that we know and I haven't had a whole lot of luck and uh, so I was sitting in church and I heard this voice. That night I had a dream. <laughs> okay, so I'm sitting in church and I'm thinking, good Lord, you know. <clears throat> and then I thought this couple that I thought, oh my gosh, they're going to stay together and their children will have grandchildren and they'll bring their children to visit them. And this is really highly unlikely, and I don't see it happening. But So then I went back to, you know what, before it's ever a word for somebody else, it's a word from us. Anything God ever gives us, it goes to us first. <laughs> so we're walking out of the church, and I said to Debbie, I said, uh, what do you say? I had a dream or whatever. And she goes, Raising Arizona. I couldn't even remember. I didn't know what movie it was from. It was just that hit me. <laughs> and... <clears throat> So we go home and we find it. <clears throat> so we go home and we find it and I pull it up and start work watching it and just cry. I haven't, I don't know when I cried that hard in years. I don't remember the last time I cried that hard. Um, and it was the beauty of the legacy. <laughs> and uh, so I think <clears throat> when we're going through hard times, we can look to the beginning of the relationship you know, what brought us together. And we can also look into the future and we can see, you know, what what does the future hold for us? What does the future hold for us when we stay together? And um, and 
it, my, my daughter, just a little lighter nose, <clears throat> which she called the, the dog the grand dog or something, or yeah. I'm granddad, or it like makes me so I'm 57, <laughs> and she's got this dog that I don't like. Anyway, I don't want it all. And Mary's like trying to push it on me as my grand dog. You know? <laughs> well, finally, I can love the dog after this. I finally come to grips with this sort of granddad dog grandchild. Well, before you, yeah. I've learned to accept Ellis when we got married, didn't want to have kids for a long time. We went through this thing I shared a little bit about last night where. We even bought a breakfast room table, and he wanted to hang on to it because it was small and intimate, and now that we're empty nesters, how nice that would be. And I'm trying to get the biggest table you can fit in that room because my boys are going to get married. I'm planning for that legacy, always thinking about grandchildren and stuff. And I realized, you know what, I just need to accept him how he is, how romantic it is that he wants a table that's smaller to sit on. And thankfully, the movers dropped it and broke it. So we did not have to keep it. We got the big table in the end. But God kept working on it because I think he's excited now after watching this clip about legacy more than ever. That night I had a dream. I dreamt I was as light as the ether. A floating spirit visiting things to come. The shades and shadows of the people in my life wrestled their way into my slumber. I dreamt that Gail Neville had decided to return to prison. Probably that's just as well. I don't mean to sound superior and they're a swell couple guys, but maybe they weren't ready yet to come out into the world. And then I dreamed on, into the future, to a Christmas morn in the Arizona home, where Nathan Jr. was opening a present from a kindly couple who preferred to remain unknown. I saw Glenn a few years later, Still having no luck getting the cops to listen to his wild tales about me and Ed. Maybe he threw in one Polak joke too many. I don't know. But still I dreamed on. Further into the future than I'd ever dreamed before. Watching Nathan Jr.'s progress from afar. Taking pride in his accomplishments as if he were our own wondering if he ever thought of us and hoping that maybe we'd broaden his horizons a little even if he couldn't remember just how they got broadened but still i hadn't dreamt nothing about me and ed until the end and this was cloudier because it was years, years away. But I saw an old couple being visited by their children and all their grandchildren too. And the old couple wasn't screwed up and neither were their kids or their grandkids. And I don't know, you tell me this whole dream.
was it wishful thinking? Was I just fleeing reality like I know I'm liable to do? But me and Ed, we can be good too. And it seemed real. It seemed like us. And it seemed like, well, our home. If not Arizona, then a land not too far away. Where all parents are strong and wise and capable. And all children are happy and beloved. I don't know. Maybe it was Utah. <laughs> so <clears throat> yeah maybe it was Utah <laughs> I don't know I love the Cohen brothers <clears throat> I guess they're Jewish judging by their name but their movies have so many Christian themes and they're just you know, beautiful movies so anyway that's it um, that's our current story about our marriage <laughs> And um, I don't know, we don't go get coffee or if anybody has questions or comments. Can I interject or, one more yeah. thing that you had mentioned that you <clears throat> forgot to share was about whoever was talking about the Trinity and God being true. Oh, uh, right. Um, so Robert <clears throat> Jensen, who, um, I don't know Stephen tells who he is. <laughs> well, he was a teacher of mine. He taught, oh, uh, you're kidding. Uh, that's right. Oh, that's uh, right. Robert Jensen is one of the most famous American theologians. Yeah. He died uh, just America. recently. Yeah. And uh, he is known especially for his his uh, teaching on the doctrine of the Trinity, yeah. which I hear you. And uh, it's been important not only in this country, but uh, but worldwide. Wow. And, uh, yeah. Well, here's what I think he said. And if I don't get it right, correct <laughs> But he said, um, he, so with one, talking about the Trinity, and, and then translate that to human, so with one person, with one God, or whatever, you can have truth. Um, but it takes tr two to have love, so the Father and the Son are the man and the wife. But it really takes three to have joy. Um, and that's what we saw this summer. You know, Debbie uh, was right. I wanted the small, little, intimate table. I wanted it for me and her, right? Um, thankfully, they dropped it. <laughs> so it expanded, you know, and we just got to use the new table for the first time, which has this huge leaf, and we had 10 people at the table. And just, so the bringing in the third person, that's where you find joy. Bringing in the sitters who loved my mother, I mean, it was just like, to see their care for her was remarkable. Yeah, it was really glad in my heart um, to see how our children came in and were part of it. And so, um, yeah, just the, the joy really came from the community that, that came about through this winter time. And, uh, and, and you know, spring triumphed. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, uh, and that's our testimony. So thank you all for coming. You know, the one comment you made early in your presentation about the fact that Christian adage of God wasn't ready for your mother to go yeah, yet, yeah. and the questioning of that, but then you hear the rest of your discussion and how
how yeah. it brought it everything true. together. Yeah. It was true, and it's it always was true. Yeah. Because Absolutely. he wasn't through with your mother yet for what she did for you all as yes. a family. Thank and the you. legacy. Thank and you. that would That's have been really her good. heart's desire. Yeah. To, yeah. To yeah. And the sitters kept saying that. He, you have so much still to give. And, you know, so many people they care for are not conscious or very aware. And I mean, like she taught one of the sitters the game of baseball because she was from Africa, you know, and she'd never, I mean, she was just constantly stimulating them right back, you know, so it was just. Yeah, another sitter had her grandkids coming to town and they were like, what am I going to do with them for a week? And Virginia said, take them to Mountainville. Oh. Well, I don't know, you know where Mountainville, anyway, it's, it, it's, it's, you know, Indian mounds from 600s or something, you know, so anyway, it was really, they, they really enjoyed their time together. And, um, so, anyway. He is, you know, I think when we go somewhere we don't necessarily want to go with him, he has something really rich for us there. And I, and I think it's, for me, it's letting go of self-reliance, and I don't even realize I'm doing that. I'm thinking that's, my dad always said, don't trust anybody get yourself in a position to take care of yourself so you'll never get taken advantage of. So I think I've lived my whole life with Christ trying to stop doing that and lean in. And, and I think I am trusting him. And then he calls me somewhere like that and all bets are off. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, and I think that was their generation. My mother felt the same way. You know, you, you can't trust other people. You have to be self-sufficient. You have to be the one that makes your own way. And that is a miserable way to live your life. It's a horrible way to live your life. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's an old prayer, I don't remember the, the name of it. It is in the valleys that we grow. And you think about the valley yeah. you went through with yeah. your right. the growth that occurred. Exactly. You there was yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that was, that's exactly where it happens. Yeah. So, yeah. Can you say something about your spiritual journeys? terms of did this happen for you both separately? Yes. It did. Your, your spiritual yes. renewal separately yeah. or together? Uh, separately. At the same time? At the same, at the same time. time. At different churches that we were not a member of. <laughs> <laughs> I was yeah. attending a Presbyterian church. We were a member of a Baptist church and he was going to an Episcopal church. And it was really about proximity. I was downtown. It wasn't about proximity. Well, I mean, initially, while we went there, oh, okay. you got invited to a downtown Bible That's study right. with your partner, yeah. and it was Paul's Alls. I put my children in childcare at this particular church and thought, well, they're already there. I could go on Tuesdays and go to a women's Bible study. And I, I mean... Uh, yeah, and, and maybe what you're asking is... Um, you tell me. I mean, I, uh, you know, well, so growing up Southern Baptist, I thought I was supposed to be the spiritual leader of the house and all that, right? And so I tried then, and that didn't really work. Um, for, because, I mean, what kind of leader was I? I mean, I had a bad temper and whatever and all that. So, um, so the whole thing about, um, um, I think women get frustrated with their husbands because, you know, when you're at a church, so many churches, it's the women who really do all the work. Is the women that you know you can sit down with them and have a little, well, they're kind of the hands and feet, and so then, then the husband's off working or whatever. Or, um, so I get 
so women get frustrated with their husbands that they're not spiritual enough and husbands get frustrated with their wives sometimes that they're not spiritual enough but it's each's definition of spiritual right? so what I learned to do was to leave Debbie alone like I would try to talk to Debbie about some theological topic and she would say call Jonathan <laughs> Jonathan was my friend that I could always talk to that stuff about um, and it's interesting I've got a guy that I met through Mockingbird um, who um, was kind of referred to me by another Mockingbird guy and, says, he, and he's kind of having issues in his marriage and he said we well, ought to call Ellison and really he just wants somebody to talk to about theology and about the God that you talked about this morning and everybody else is talking about and his, there's a dearth of that in the town where they live but his wife is really happy with the church where they go it sounds great for the kids you know they're young and so he's like trying to decide am I supposed to do something more and leave the family and find the right church or whatever and I said no my wife just told me to call Jonathan <laughs> so stay where you are you know I mean if you could find that somehow but don't you know if your wife is comfortable there and your kids are comfortable there stay there and you know call me and that I think is you can have and one thing that's so amazing to me is that we both kind of wound up we both believe in the same God now. Um, we've both been on our own kind of for a number of years. We were on a kind of separate journey to God, and then we wound up at the same place. And so I really like her sort of leader, mentor, Kathy Gerardo, and I'm so thankful for her. And she's so thankful for Paul and Saul. And in and, and, and anyway, we had this preacher at Covenant Press, um, guy by the name of Bill Boyd. <coughs> Bill would say Christianity is like a jewel, it's multifaceted, and there are all these different windows into it. And so he exposed us to um, some Catholic, like um, von Balthasar, um, some of the early church fathers. I mean, there are, all, there are other ways of looking at Christianity besides law, grace, law, gospel, and they're helpful as well. Um, so don't, I tried to pull her along. <laughs> and get her to do what I was doing. I think doing. the interesting thing is we're given different temperaments. Yeah. I'm being so impacted in that small Bible study that I'm like, oh, God's going to do this for Ellis. He's yes. going to become more like me. Thank goodness it's coming. <laughs> and he's hoping that I'm going to become more like him. Right. And, and in our previous testimony, we shared about um, I ended up going to counseling because Ellis told me our marriage he thought was fine and I could go by myself <laughs> if I needed to go. And so I did that and it was really fruitful. But I'll never forget you, Craggy, telling me that original sin is when you want everybody created in your own image. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe the Lord's going to let Ellis still be a lot more of Ellis than I ever expected. But we're, di we're different temperaments and so God speaks to me through nature a lot and I'm growing in my love of reading theology so much. I'm so thankful for that because if I'd married somebody else, I would have never gone down that path. And I don't know if he's become a nature lover, but he's become more sensitive to different things that I brought that God spiritually connects with, connects to me. And so we're starting to appreciate each other's quote unquote weirdness and not change each other. Um, when I saw him be so gracious to me in the moment, and I've had the freedom to be gracious to him when he was struggling this summer, um, at one point he just said, you know, I don't think we could stay with 
hurting mom anymore at night. She can't get out of bed anyway. Let's just go home and we'll come back every morning. I'm like, we can't do that. We even signed a contract by the hospice that we're going to stay with her. And to me, in the past, that might have made me feel vulnerable or like he's bowing out. He's just practical. He just thought we needed to go home and stay and get a good night's rest. It was nothing more than that. And then for me, I would say, I feel like your mom's dominating all my time and taking over my life. Well, the woman's dying. She's on hospice. Let's wake up, you know. But we were able to do that graciously and speak truth to each other without wondering how each person came to the conclusion they had come. And I think that's what love starts looking like when you start realizing that, you know, he's it's up to God to, to mend all those fences. I really am called to love him in the midst of it. And he did that well for me this summer. Well, thanks. Can we have coffee? So when we become grandparents, we'll probably have to do another one. Yeah. 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 Support. <laughs> and that's not going to happen real soon. Yeah, we don't think. Does your daughter have a boyfriend? She's actually married, and okay. she is like me. She can't wait to have children, but she's gone back to school two years with a master's program. And, and so, and her brothers aren't married. And, so we're hoping nothing's going to happen here. We are. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, have, have y'all all seen Raisin Arizona? Yeah. Well, I know it's a long time. I think I've seen it once, and it was 20 years ago, and I'm sitting there, and they're doing something in the church, and it said, and then I had a dream or whatever he said. It was the weirdest. And I really do think God speaks to us. The sport coats this morning. You know, yeah, that, that was hysterical. I mean, the little things that God does in our lives, the things that we all just pass off as coincidences. No, God uses those things to say, I'm up here and I care about the minute details of your life. So they're good friends because he liked his sport coat, you know, and then he worked at the store where he bought it. I mean, it's, that's the kind of God we serve, one who's, you know, sovereign and interested in what's best for us, even if. To get there, sometimes we have to go through difficult times. Well, so. I think that if you hadn't gone through this, it wouldn't have changed you all, it wouldn't have changed your children. Right. Right. We've, all, we've all were going through periods of time where you yeah. think, can we just get through this already? Right. Right. That's you sort of know the inevitable ending and might be weeks, might be months, might be years. Yeah. But then when you look back, when it's all over with you, you can see how it's sort of changed everybody yeah. else involved in their lives, and that's just the greatest gift. You don't see it as you're going through it. But. Right. You don't, and it's hard to believe anything good will come out of this. And then so much, you know, so thankful. Also, our children are growing in Christ and growing to become fine adults when I don't spend time with them. It's not all on my back. You know, I had less time with them this summer, and I saw both of my sons really grow up a lot from needing to take responsibility with their grandmother and just less time with us. It made it more quality time. All right. Well, thank you all. Thank you so much for your time.